Okay, we're walking in the woods again and getting rained on a little bit today. I don't think it's going to get too bad, so uh, we'll we'll just go ahead and hit record and hopefully we stay we stay dry enough to keep the conversation going. Um, well, we are getting I, bothered by the mosquitoes, though. So yeah, hopefully we do today. stay dry enough because we're far enough away from home that if we start getting poured on, we're going to be poured on for a long ways. Um, anyways, today we're going to talk a little bit, hopefully, about the um, the mark of the beast in Revelation. And with, um, I'll just say briefly, totalizing systems that try to categorize everything, um, the sin of, of not of rational thought, but of the, of the kind of rational pride. Um, but that's all kind of coming up later. First, we wanted to just kick it off with a little discussion of the book of Revelation generally, more broadly, and how is it that we approach the book of Revelation um, and David, you were just, oh, here comes that rain. You were just talking about, uh, um, about different ways that people view Revelation, and you're saying some of these just seem like they're not that useful to living a good Christian life. Yeah. So um, what do you have in mind? I don't, I don't really want to go too far, like, bring up, here's this view of Revelation, here's that view of Revelations, and take, like, the combative approach to some other uh, approach. But, you know, like, we had this conversation privately a few nights ago where, like, you know, being younger and being exposed to these kind of hardcore interpretations of revelations and here's how this is going to happen and here's how this is the end of the world and here's how we interpret all these things, so on and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think Dad um, said, our dad said that the, uh, um, the dispensationalists have all the best charts. And <laughs> right. It's specifically, yeah, talking about, like, charts of, of how the events in Revelation will unfold in history. But go on. Yeah, um, so on. Um, yeah, just kind of just general things like that. Um, I guess I was hesitating from specifically mentioning, like, dispensationalists or millennialists or any of these different groups. Mm -hmm. um, I'm like, I'm not trying to call out some specific person and say, you're full of baloney and here's why. Um, instead, of what, what I'm trying to do is present... Uh, an alternative that I guess like for me personally like takes revelations from this standpoint where it's like this really heavy and dark and cryptic and oppressive thing that I, I, I really don't like reading it and I'd rather not talk about it to okay. where and, and, and just to, to make sure like we're capturing it, it's not dark because it's got like images of dragons and and the flaming sword coming out of Christ's mouth and these like kind of horror sort of images that's not the kind of darkness you mean you mean like the darkness of 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 rational theology essentially like yeah uh, you've got you've got everything has its particular place and if you sit down and you kind of read through this then it, it feels like like reality is is an oppressive machine yeah right i guess that's a good way of putting it i hadn't quite thought of it in that way exactly um but anyway like moving it from that that kind of perspective where if i have that perspective i really dislike revelations and i'd rather not read it or talk about it mm -hmm. to where now if I, I look at it in in sort of this different way like we're not going to go too far into detail like we said we're actually talking about the mark of the beast specifically and the number of the beast um where like suddenly like i understand revelations in such a way that like what i see it as um not so much this uh like charted out description of the end of the world but like the whole of scripture contained in a single narrative and like the whole of christianity summarized and like presented in this perfect form um mm -hmm. and like 
you suddenly like you see unfolding in revelations like i guess you could say through your spiritual eyes um just like this this perfect form of christianity and to where suddenly it's like wow this is an amazing book and i really like it yeah and i want to read it right now i want to i want to quick before we leave uh, I guess the complaining, not that I'm going to be doing any complaining, any complaining against specific groups or anything, but, um, when, uh, when I was working in the Dominican Republic, I was working all with Americans who were all speaking English. It wasn't really that exotic of an experience that I'm describing here, but, uh, um, we were going to have a chapel service. Now there was this guy who worked at the school that I was a part of, um, who was, a uh, like uh, he had a, a master's degree in history um, and, and was kind of like the uh, uh, the local scholar. Um, I mean, this was a boarding school for troubled teenagers, so it wasn't really the place that attracts scholars. Um, uh, I'm not criticizing it by saying that, but it's just it's a different kind of person that's drawn to it. So this guy was sort of the scholar in residence, I guess. And um, he wanted to do a service, and I, I think... I, I could have my facts wrong, and it'll be really easy to, to look this up for anybody who's listening. Um, I think that this was the Saturday before Easter, and that I might be mistaken about, but it was a it was a practice in Coptic Christianity that leading up to Easter, you have a, a church service where you just read the book of Revelation, and then there's some music that goes along with it, but there's no preaching of any kind. There's no interpretation whatsoever. You just read the book of Revelation from beginning to end. And when I heard of his plan to do this, um, I mean, I, I, I mentioned the whole story just to describe this moment. Like, there's this sort of, like, uh, churning in my gut. Like, uh, something made me uncomfortable about the idea of reading Revelation with a group of people. And the thing that made me uncomfortable is exactly what you're describing. Um, this, this sort of, uh, like, dark system of interpretation. And when you sit down and you read it, you sort of feel like this burden that you are supposed to you are supposed to subscribe to one or another system of interpretation um and then you have this sort of rational task of every time these images come up in the book then you're supposed to figure out what is the meaning of the image um and so like this the whole thing sounded like like something i was not going to enjoy and um and i really did enjoy it um i was i was quite surprised like to actually just read the book and to not worry about any preaching, not worry about any ter- interpretation, not worry about any system whatsoever, but just to, like, just to see the images, like, be exposed to them. Right. Um, and, and to feel them. Um, I, it was just, just something that I, I took to be a very positive experience. It's hard for me to explain what I gained from it um, from an intellectual standpoint, but I guess one thing would be a greater interpretation of the book itself, which is yeah. something... Um, yeah, and I guess it gets gets into the point, um, so like, we lay like this systematic approach over Revelation, which is really something we do to the whole of Scripture, it's kind of the subject we had in our last, uh, I guess, it'll be three episodes, is that right, when we were talking about (laughs) our approach to Scripture, um, it's sort of the same thing, that like, you lay like this, uh, rigid framework over things, and like funnel everything through it mm-hmm. and, I, and I guess like sort of the point we're going to make and this will make more sense as we go on that what, what maybe what you're actually doing 
or maybe what I'm actually doing, I don't want to sound accusatory in my language, again, um, like maybe what I'm actually doing when I take that kind of a view on scripture and I fall back into that sort of pattern is I am actually uh, I guess, how do I want to say this? I'm actually placing on myself the mark of the beast. I'm actually embracing that. Um, and I don't, that's something that maybe sounds like total nonsense, but I think hopefully it'll make more sense as we okay. go into this conversation. Yeah, and I'll just, I'll just put this idea of the, of the totalizing system out there when you say, like, because um, we'll associate totalizing system with the mark of the beast. And I don't want to get into that conversation just yet, but... Um, but you're saying that I'm coming to this text and I'm putting a totalizing system on it. Um, right. I, I guess I also want to mention um, with the book of Revelation, it, it's a book that has been um, extremely important. Um, I, I, like you, I don't want to attack different ways of interpreting it because um, I think that basically like in any system of of interpretation of revelation um there probably is an element of truth in it like according to our own perspective um and the uh well some some interpretations are maybe trickier for the, us than others i guess to to fit into the way that we look at it but for the most part um, we can we can look at something and say like well is this all just a description of Rome then we can say um, yeah that works that's a description of Rome and and then we can look and we can say well is it is it instead a description of um, what happens within the individual spirit then we can look at it and say yeah that works that's it's an interpretation yeah. of what happens in the individual spirit could it be describing um, the uh, the Catholic Church um, you know like the way that the reformers looked at it. Um, yeah, it could be describing that. Um, we, we're, we're going to approach this thing as the symbols in this book as being part of a pattern. Right. And, and, and like, if you want to categorize, like, first of all, like, I don't like categorizing things. Um, and like, that'll make more sense as we go on. Because like, you know, on the one hand, I do like categorizing things because it's, it's very useful. But on the other hand, like, forcing everything into categories is actually a very bad thing in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. Um, but like if we were going to categorize this, maybe you could say on the one hand you have a closed interpretation of things. This is this. Um, this is yeah, talking right, about this. Right. And then on the other hand you have an open interpretation of yeah, things. Yeah, that's good. Because a closed interpretation means like if, if you've set your boundaries for your closed interpretation too tight, then what your interpretation is doing is it's cutting off all kinds of truth. It's cutting off more truth than it's including. Right. Yeah, so like it, tying this back to the mark of the beast, um, so like Christianity goes crazy in identifying the mark of the beast. Like say like this is the mark of the beast, barcodes are the mark of the beast, uh, microchips are the mark of the beast, vaccines. cell phones, <laughs> vaccines, yeah. That's Which the, include microchips apparently. Right. Um, all of these things, this is the mark of the beast and if you take these things like you're taking on yourself the mark of the beast. Um, and like I'm tempted to have a response to that, like, no, you're all crazy. These things aren't the mark of the beast. Like, when the mark of the beast, like, sometimes I, I almost have this idea, like, when the mark of the beast comes along, like, you'll know it. But, like, actually, I think that's the opposite of true. <laughs> um, um, I think, like, actually, you're all right in that these things maybe not necessarily are the mark of the beast, but are certainly connected to the mark of the beast. Um, and yeah, I guess 
again like this is something that hopefully will unfold in like its meaning will unfold and open up to you as we go forward okay yeah i'm i still am not ready to quite get into the market of beasts i mean right so i'm gonna i'm gonna keep pulling back for a little while whenever you bring it up no that's fine but actually like this is something i think is important part of this um i guess approach to religion and scripture and stuff that we're trying to promote is that you can't actually talk about these things directly. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm going to mention since you were talking about categories, <laughs> I'm just going to steal something that you said to me earlier today um, that David took a census and it's recorded in a couple different books. Probably one of those is a Chronicles and one of them is a Kings. Yeah, I think so. Um, because like, those, it might those actually be recorded in all three. It might not be in Chronicles and Kings and Samuel. Oh yeah, okay. I'm not. I don't remember. So, so you said in one book, um, in one book it says God tempted David to take the census, and in another book it says the devil tempted Davis, David to take a census. Um, and so there's this idea. Yeah, I don't that, know. That, I'll, I'll, I'll tack on a disclaimer. I don't know that that's exactly word for word. Okay. Okay. That's good. The, off the top of my head, paraphrase. Yeah. Um, but but at, at any rate, we get this idea that taking a census is not entirely a good thing. And from the, uh, the sort of perspective of um, the, the rationalist and certainly of the, uh, the totalitarian leader, then of course it's a good thing. Of course you want to categorize every single person. Right. Um, yeah, which is like David's actual motivation. He wants, to, he wants to know, he wants to take account of the strength of Israel mm -hmm. so that he knows his capability to go to war. Yeah. So like that seems at first is like well yeah obviously like Jesus tells the parable of the guy, you know, building a tower or whatever it is, and not uh, not taking account of his money, and then like not being able to get it finished and you know he looks like a fool. Mm -hmm. um, you know so like so obviously you know like you don't want to go into battle and you know not make the plans. Right. Right. Not know what your strength is and then just get defeated like. So obviously, what David was doing it was good, right? Mm -hmm. Now, but you but you also said that when uh, when they they took the census, this is a, a different passage. Um, then they had to they well, had to make some kind of uh, like purification. Well, so that was actually that. So that's in the in the law in like Deuteronomy or something. Like that. I don't remember exactly where. Yeah. There's a law concerning like. So it's like it's not that David wasn't allowed to take his census. It's that the law uh, did allow for it. Yeah, the law did allow it, but tacked on a requirement like. If you do this, if you take account of the men of Israel, every man in Israel has to give a ransom for his soul. Yeah. Or something like that. Right. Like make a sacrifice. Right. And so, I mean, just to apply that to categories, it's like you said You said putting things into categories is useful. In the case of a census, it's useful. In the case of theology, it may be useful at times. Yeah. Um, certainly in the in the case of like how you conduct your life as a business person or, you know, whatever, budgeting and all that. Um, like there's there's value. Actually, I since I mentioned budgeting, I will say I don't budget at all. I never have. And I, I do very well with my money. But it's uh, um, I just have this simple law that like, if your expenses are less than your income, then you're good. And yeah, right. I mean, I just, I never have had to worry about money. Um, and I've never categorized anything. Yeah. But, but I spend less money than anybody that I know. So yeah. it's easy for me. But that's what it's like when you're, uh, when you, when you want to be a, a hermit, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, um, categorizing things um, and just, just rational approach to things, coming up with a rational system of things can be really, really beneficial. Um, but there's also a kind of cost that goes along with it. And you can do it 
it is it is permitted in the law but you also have to be aware of the cost that comes with it and so you need to right. you need to pay this this ransom for your soul when you're doing it and and when you mentioned it it made me think of of like the way that people feel about social media or different uh um different aspects of of internet culture where everybody's collecting your personal data all the time it's like there are systems out there and and literal machines in this case that are that are putting you into categories um and you can do that but it's also right of you to to be resistant to it in some way yeah you, you can do it you can be a part of it but but there's also like you need to find some way to kind of pay this right. ransom for your soul yeah so going like going back to the story of david it's like that's what he doesn't do in israel like there's no ransom paid for the souls of the men of israel for taking the census and so god requires a ransom of them um he puts a curse on david and on israel and like how is it i can't remember if these details are exactly right god gives david a choice so it's like okay you've done this thing and violated the law and didn't pay the ransom um and like also like there's also like an element like you're you're forgetting the lessons that god has taught you that it's the strength of the lord that delivers you from your enemies and not your own strength mm -hmm. but so you've taken this on upon yourself so now there's a price to pay either you can flee from your enemies for three days or you can have a a famine for such and such a period or you can have a plague like choose one and i think i think he chose the plague is that right i don't know um but it's like here like there's a consequence yeah right um yeah so i i think that's helpful to mention that just because it does capture a lot of of our perspective of of categorizing but of, of rational thought and rational systems and maybe i could even use the word totalizing systems again yeah. Um, is like there there actually is a kind of a place for that but, but there price. are dangers yeah, yeah there's, there's a, a price, price too. that you have like you can't get around paying price yeah right um, and so like it kind of ends up like you're actually better off not doing it like David would have been David and Israel would have been far better off had he just not taken the census mm -hmm. although it's like like you talk about like you understand that if you abide by these simple principles and these simple laws that you don't have to take account for everything yeah right it's when you well that's what i said about budgeting like yeah I, you know, I, that's what I, was I have a law that is way simpler than budgeting right and and it's to me it's 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 a very light burden you yeah, know right again the law is basically just don't spend money but don't spend more than you're making <laughs> yeah right and, and, and so, i don't i mean i don't i don't intend to use this as an opportunity to brag about myself but like but um i mean i, I make investments so I, like i prepare for the future um and yeah, in different ways. Again, I won't talk too much about about the types of investments that I make, but it's it's not exactly that I'm just uh, um, just floating through this world. Yeah. But I have I have a law and I adhere to it, and it is really easy to adhere to because it's so simple. Yeah, and it's like you have all these. This is kind of an aside, but also still related, I guess. Um, like you have like all these things in in Christianity today, like these teachers on you know like being good stewards and budgeting and watching over your finances and balancing them out and doing this and that and that and it's like it's really interesting to me to see this like there's a very simple law which is essentially <laughs> essentially what you're presenting which is don't spend money yeah right uh, like this is a really simple law like you don't need these things guys um and like budgeting becomes important 
and these things become important and retirement funds become important um, and all these things become like not only important but absolutely necessary the further you extend yourself into the world um, so it's like the more the more things that you have the like the more you're tied to them so yeah. like you have internet you have television you have a cell phone bill you have a mortgage you have a car payment you have all of these things all of these things um, it's like it's something that ties you even further down and so it becomes increasingly necessary to take account of your things take account of your mm -hmm. of your funds right. take account of yourself um, so it's like it it's these things actually are important if like the like I said the more you're extended out into the world like you can't get by like you kind of can't get by without them if you're uh, you know if it's like if you're managing a fortune 500 company it's like you'd better have <laughs> you'd better have an account of all things yeah right or you're a bad manager yeah but it's like if you're and like I guess this will go back and like throw in this metaphor it's like the more you have upon yourself the mark of the world like the more it's necessary to do these things mm -hmm. it's like the more of you the less you have that mark upon yourself the more you have like this mark of God on yourself it's like the, the rules become simpler things become simpler and I think I think that kind of relates to Christianity in general like uh, you know, like we've talked about the ecumenical councils and the history of the church and stuff like that in our private conversations quite a bit. And like I make this comment, like, I have really mixed feelings about the ecumenical councils. Because on the one hand, I don't think the things that they say are wrong. And I don't think that the things that they condemned are not in fact worthy of condemnation. But it's like what you get through this process in like the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries in that era is like this increasingly increasingly more worked out definition of Christianity which just like makes it harder and harder and harder to actually be a Christian mm -hmm. sometimes we make comments about how off-topic we're getting but I just want to pause for just a moment to to make the comment like it, it is amazing how on topic we are right now yeah right um, because because again this this is going to this is going to be the discussion. Well, by the time we get to the the mark of the beast, we will have already had the discussion about it. Yeah. Right. Um, so I'm I'm just very pleased right now in, in the way it's going. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I I did still want to make one one comment and which before is just we... like a subtle way of suggesting to everybody like <laughs> pay attention to what we're saying. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, actually, I I'm just I'm taking I I like a good structure. You know right. that that maybe that is relevant to this also. But like as I mean, as a creative person, as like a, like a storyteller or a, or a songwriter or whatever, like um, I, I I really take a kind of delight in structure, uh -huh. um, and and then in this conversation, I'm just like I'm just seeing it unfold right now, and it's it's right. just it's thrilling to me. Um, I did want to make one one more general comment about Revelation, um, and and this again, I'll, I'll reach to my uh, romantic poets for this one. Um, but I, I did say that the book of Revelation has been extremely important um, to a lot of people down through the years. And um, for, for basically every great romantic poet, um, the, book of the, Revela the book of Revelation was, was one of the most important influences in their life and in their work. Um, and that goes for 
for Wordsworth, who is the premier of all of them, um, in my estimation, and, and in many other people's as well. He's like the definition of the whole movement um, in its in its best form, I guess. Maybe I would I would add. Um, but his his biggest influence, what he aspired to be or to be better than, was Paradise Lost. Um, and then like his number two influence was the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. And then you have you have guys like Shelley who was a um, atheist or agnostic and um, yet he, he said he made Revelation his constant study. Right. Um, and then you get like a, like Blake was sort of in his own world when it came to, to religious beliefs. Um, I mean really fascinating character, but he said everything everything that I know came from the Bible. He, he also is a big fan of Paradise Lost, incidentally. There's, I mean, there's obviously strong connections between Paradise Lost and the, the book of Revelation. But, uh, but Blake and his wife would, would sit naked in their garden and read Paradise Lost together. Um, but, but anyways, I said he would... Um, Not that we're necessarily endorsing that <laughs> behavior. No, but it, it, makes a, it makes a strong point about this sort of uh, uh, prophetic literature in the character of Revelation. Uh-huh. Um, so, so he said everything that I know came from the Bible. And again, I, like that's conservative Christians shouldn't get that excited about Blake. Um, I mean, I guess in a way, I'm a I'm conservative Christian and I'm excited about him. But like he he's not uh, he's not endorsing your positions when he says that. Uh-huh. Um, but but uh, again, like premier among the books of the Bible, Revelation um, is is like where it's really at for Blake as well. Um, uh, again, just if you're um, if you're in this sort of uh, like quasi-mystical poetic tradition of the Romantic poets, um, then you love the Book of Revelation. And these guys also are rejecting um, institutions. They're rejecting um, rational systems. They're, I mean, the, the rational systems of the Enlightenment, um, the, uh, the, the institutions of, of the church and the monarchy in France. I mean, these are English poets, but... Uh, again, wherever there's a, like a, a rational or totalizing system, they do not like it. Um, and so any of these rational approaches or totalizing approaches to Revelation, um, they just, they, they had no interest in them whatsoever. And without those systems, they looked at Revelation and they said, this is awesome. This, what's happening in this book is amazing. Yeah. And, and like the greatest thing that I could accomplish in my life would be if I could do something like this. Right. Um, yeah, and I, like for me, like like you say, I'm not, uh, I guess, looking to accomplish something on the scale of Revelations for that you can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I say, like yeah. Revelations is everything. Um, like I mean that as far as you can extend that idea. <laughs> Like Revelations is everything. Well, Revelations... I mean, give give a taste of that because that's really where I would like to go with the conversation. Yeah. But I have a different way of talking about it than you do, maybe. Oh, but... uh, it's like Revelations is a is a totality. Like I mentioned earlier, like, um, how would I say this? Revelations isn't, I guess, in my view, some new prophecy that's tacked on to the end of Scripture to tell us how it's going to happen when Jesus returns to judge the world. It's like no, Revelations is actually, like. John receiving this vision that shows him how everything comes together. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and like, I think Jesus actually gives you this clue repeatedly throughout the book of Revelations when he comes up and says, like, you know, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the end, and like the one that was and is and is yet to come. And it's like he's describing himself 
And like this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like what John is seeing is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And like this is saying like this story, this revelation, this is the thing that like Christ, who it is the revelation of, this was already, like this has already happened, but it also is right now. Like this is describing your current reality. And it's also describing something that's to come. Like it's it's the complete story of all of history. It's the complete story of all of scripture. It's the complete story of Christ. It's the complete story of the of of the church. And it's like it's also the complete story of your culture. Or it's the complete story of me as an individual. Like it's all of these things. Mm -hmm. And so it's like that's this is kind of why I throw out this uh, like charted out interpretation of revelations is because in that view of revelation it's none of those things yeah so it's like you lose you entirely lose the meaning of revelations when well, you're trying to well figure it's, it out. you know like i said earlier about the uh, you mentioned the idea of a closed interpretation mm -hmm. um and i said if you have a closed interpretation you're throwing out more more truth than you're capturing um yeah i, I still think those closed interpretations are capturing Something they're that's capturing true. something, um, um, but I'm not entirely sure what they're capturing. Sometimes, well, uh, I mean, I, I specifically mentioned like if you interpret Revelation to be speaking about um, about the Catholic Church and the papacy, right? Um, you know, like in in the uh, the uh, centuries or decades leading up to the Reformation, um, then okay, that works. Right. That is a good interpretation. That you can see the patterns in Revelation in the church at that time so that is right. a correct interpretation yeah but then when you limit yourself to merely that interpretation like what you end up what you end up causing is something terrible and abominable and tyrannical right yeah um it's just like i guess again ties us back like we say this conversation keeps tying itself back to itself like ties us back to this mark of the beast it's like when you totalize something like that you what you create is absolute tyranny mm -hmm. like what you create is something that is like it seems like it's really good and like it's built on something that's good and it's it contains truth and like you can't like you can't refute it at its face because like well obviously there's truth here but like it, it just ends up being it ends up being a beast that devours the world right yeah i i uh i'm i just kind of tie this to i guess like my philosophy of art um, and, and symbol and art in particular, we try to interpret works of art and we try to say this is the meaning of work of art. And when we do that, when we say this is what this symbol means, what we've done is we've cut okay. off every possible meaning of that symbol except for one. And so it, the same thing I said about the closed category, the symbol now means less than it did before because you provided an interpretation of it. Um, and and that's something that has something to do with the, the spirit of your interpretation as well because like your interpretation might have been great but um, but when you present that as the interpretation then um, then the great thing that you've captured winds up paling in comparison to the the whole depth and breadth of what that symbol can be so if you do that you you make that kind of interpretation and then you start teaching that in a classroom then all these kids have to sit through your your English class and they hear about this means this and this means this and this means this and they think i am not interested at all right uh, i hate literature i mean <laughs> right. that that is the response to you know people might call it over analyzing um and in a sense 
in a sense it's not it's not overanalyzing is kind of the right word um, but like I said your interpretation might have been perfect it's not like you you interpreted something that wasn't there um, but you acted like like your interpretation was the whole of reality and the whole of truth yeah. and it and it's not right um. yeah I mean which gets back to something like Something we've, oh, I oh, guess. you know, as since I since I made that, I also wanted to say, like you're talking about this type of interpretation applied to to the symbols in Revelation as being like the mark of the beast, and what you have is something awful when you do that type of interpretation. So that's why I mentioned the English classroom where you have all these kids and they look at that kind of interpretation and they say, this has nothing to do with me. Right. Um, you, people love, 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 love stories. And when you put this mark of the beast upon stories, people will hate stories. You're right. Yeah, and it's like people should love Christianity. Like, they really should. If you give them true Christianity, like, they're going to love it. It's not mm -hmm. that they should, like, they're going to. But when you put the mark of the beast on it, like, they're going to hate it. It becomes, it becomes a monster, a monstrosity. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, that's very perfectly said. I, I think that that has been such a major theme in all of our conversations um, that we've had so far. Like, I mean, what's the problem with rational thought? What's the problem with categories and, and totalizing systems and all of that? And we say, well, actually, there is a place for those things. There is a place for categories. But when you close that system, then then you've created a monster that, that people will hate. And our tendency in our world, not only in Christianity, but uh, across the culture in every kind of a way, is to to set up a category and to close it so that that any truth that is outside of that box you will attack it and destroy it um like we're just we're we're, we're creating a, an yeah. awful world right. by doing that um yeah and like like i mentioned to you before like i don't i want to be more careful not to make it sound in things that i'm saying like that i'm attacking a viewpoint and that I'm attacking a, a particular group of Christianity and like even when I mention things about evangelicals and fundamentalists or maybe we say something about Catholicism or something like that it's like we're not we're not I'm not try, I'm not trying to attack them I'm not trying to ridicule them and and so on and so forth like I my motivation I guess is what we're getting at in this uh, um, in this conversation is I'm against this kind of totalizing categorization. You know, people always talk about this uh, this image of like we want to wake people up. Yeah. And I, I feel like almost what we want to do is like is put people to sleep. <laughs> like, um, uh, again, like the, the the rational thought, the light of reason is good. Yeah. But um, but so is like the darkness of the dream. Right. Um, and and in a, a world where we've lost that then we have nothing but these totalizing systems and we have nothing but hatred for one another. And so, I, I, I mean, in a way, like, when I say put people to sleep, I mean, I, I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but, but I mean, there's like, that's a symbol with tons of meanings attached to it. One of them is like, is cease from striving. Yeah. Like, you're trying to fill every minute of your day with work. Um, you're trying to fill, like, your whole brain with this sort of mental, rational work. And, and you must sleep. You know, you, like you must cease from striving and just just be, just rest. Right. Um, as as God gave us the pattern, like you mm -hmm. you work and you rest. 
Um, but also, also what I'm saying is, is again, this sort of um, return to dreams. Um, there is something, something precious and something deeply meaningful um, in, in, in the, the non-rational world of the dream. And again, if, if we lose that, then what we have becomes a beast. Yeah. So, like, are we ever actually going to talk about <laughs> about the mark and the number of the beast? Okay. Yeah. Go for it. Uh, no. Actually, I'm not ready for <laughs> to get there yet either. Um, yeah. So, like, we've talked a little bit in our private conversations again about, like, I mentioned, I've been reading uh, Gregory Paulo Moss, and I really like him. And this might be uh, sounds strange to somebody who knows who he is. Like, why does this conservative, beachy Amish Mennonite boy like a 13th century Greek Byzantine uh, theologian of the Orthodox Church, uh, like this, the, these things seemed like they couldn't fit together. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, like, what, what, like what I really, I find fascinating to him. So he's dealing with the uh, with scholasticism. Like uh, you have um, theologians coming from the West. Uh, one in particular that has Greek background, but was raised in Italy. Um, he's coming west, or he's coming east to the Byzantine court and presenting this Western idea of scholasticism, which scholasticism is kind of what we're talking about. This uh, um, this idea that had arisen in like the uh, like the more elite schools in the West during the Middle Ages about. Uh, you know, developing systematic theologies. Yeah, I was going to use that term because because in the Protestant circles we don't talk about Protestant scholasticism, but we talk about systematic theology. Yeah, um, it was like the main thrust of scholasticism is like is is learning and study and university and like you know the universe. Well, also, I mean, just the the, the process of of um, of reasonable thought. I mean, like. Uh, uh, applying logic to theology where right. you have these are my basic uh, fundamental axiomatic truths and I got those from the Bible right and I, maybe I got those from other sources but like these are the, the principles that I can say these are true and now when I start putting them together I can come to conclusions and right. build, so build it's like conclusions a, off of those things I it's mean that's like a Pythagorean <laughs> theology uh, yeah I mean in a sense um, but I mean it's just it, I mean it's like it's it's pure basic like fundamental logic and logic is a good thing you know i mean like it's it's a good process right but like you you start building these little pieces together and um we're just in order to do that um you've got to you've got to turn all of your your basic axiomatic principles that you got from scripture or from wherever else you have to turn those into these closed box systems um, you have to make them mean less than what they might have might have meant otherwise. And now you've turned them into objects, and now you can pile them together and you can build a great system out of them. Yeah. Um, but it's like they they were never objects to begin with. So the whole um, the whole the whole practice of logic, in a sense, is like is built on this idea of of turning turning principles into objects, making them into one simple thing. And, and again, like it's extremely useful. I, I definitely don't want to go on the record as like discouraging logical thinking. No, and so like this goes back, like going back to Gregory Palamas, like his big thing is uh, the, the transfiguration on Mount Tabor, um, and like pointing out to people, like pay attention to what happened here, and to what Jesus says to Peter. So like, 
let's make sure I get the story straight. I think it's Peter asks his or Jesus asks his disciples before they go up the mountain, "Who you say that I am?" And they list off all these things that people say that they are. So it's like Gregory says, "Like, look, this is an illustration of teaching. That here's here's what the teaching is concerning who you are." And then Peter finally pipes up and says, "You're Christ, the Son of the Living God." And Jesus' response to that is, "Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. Like nobody taught you this." Mm -hmm. um, and then they go up the mountain of transfiguration, and they see him transfigured before them, and like illumined by the light of God, um, which is a really interesting story because like it's it's a light, but it also casts a shadow. Like it, it's a light that envelops and obscures. Yeah. So like it seems to contain like contradictory natures but uh and so like he's looking at he's looking at this story and saying like look what's going on here is that peter's understanding is illuminated by the light of god which is like is the word is christ that this is where you get understanding this is this is this is where your intellect is informed from but like before that like you actually have to subject your intellect to it like you have to not put your trust in your institutions and in your faculties and in your rational abilities mm -hmm. like your your faculties of reason and logic yeah it's like these things are not sufficient to make you a theologian to give you understanding of god but only god himself is sufficient to give you that yeah you know, you can kind of make that, that argument, that same sort of uh, critique. Well, I will say the critique of the limits of pure reason. And I use that phrase because that's the title of a Immanuel Kant book. Uh, uh, the limits of pure reason. Yeah. But, uh, um, I wouldn't know that. But, uh, but, but you, can, you can make a very secular case for that as well. And, it, I mean, it's a very ancient case, which is just like, you look at the field of rhetoric. Um, rhetoric is... is basically the art of persuasion it's the process of bringing someone else into an understanding of the truth right now I mean you could define it in more manipulative ways as well rhetoric is how I get people to believe what I want them to believe um, but but we'll, we'll present it in the most positive possible light and say that's the art of bringing people into an understanding of the truth and and you have like these three pillars in rhetoric uh, the three rhetorical appeals which are ethos pathos and logos and logos um, of course, uh, we have this theological meaning of the word logos. Um, the, uh, um, the logos was made flesh. Um, uh, you know, like, it, I mean, it, John talks about Christ as being the logos. But in, in rhetoric, we can just simply translate that and say we're talking about logic. We're talking about the ra rational pattern of thinking. And if you can walk somebody through the rational pattern of thinking, that will help you to persuade them of your position. But that is insufficient, according to the, the field of rhetoric. So not only do you need reason, but you have appeal to ethos, which is which is authority. Um, and I mean, like modern people don't like authority, but when it comes to rhetoric, we just kind of have to bite the bullet and say, yes, this is reality. You cannot persuade people unless you can persuade them that you are an authority or, you know, that there is something authoritative about your message. Um, the institution that you represent is an authority, whatever. But, like, you are not going to persuade people to, to, to your position 
unless authority is on your side. And then the other is pathos, which we normally just translate as an appeal to emotion. Um, I mean, maybe you could come up with a loftier way of describing that and say, like, well, religious experience is not mere emotion, um, and that is a, that is a part of this persuasive of like flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Um, uh, anyway, I just wanted to make the point, like you, you can make the secular argument that says um, reason isn't going to get you to the truth, but you can also make like this, not only a secular argument, but like a very utilitarian kind of secular argument that says reason alone isn't going to get somebody there. Right. Um, yeah, so like going back, again, to like tying this into our broader conversation, the broader pattern, I guess. Again, like, so we're kind of making the argument that um, logic and reason. The Kant thing might have been called, or Kant thing might have been called critique of pure reason. I'm not sure. I might have the title a little bit wrong. So yeah. I, I did just want to make that quick comment. Go ahead. Um, anyway, going back to like to the so we're talking about the mark of the beast here. Remember that. <laughs> I'm reminding the audience. Yeah, I know. But if um, I if I did make a mistake, I wanna I wanna right. acknowledge it. Yeah. No. Um, like sort of the the argument that we're presenting here is that this I guess I would put it like uh, the trust that you place in your in your logic or in your reason um, or even in in like so let's say you're you're putting like total trust in the theology and the doctrines of your denomination as they've been given down to you or your confession of faith that somebody 400 years ago wrote down and you've adopted as your personal belief system as mm -hmm. like being like a totality of your belief um, and like all of these things it's like well these are all of them the mark of the beast yeah you know there's something really interesting in that process too because that's that's a closed system that you have received yeah. it's a closed category and the people who wrote it did not have that closed category. Yeah, right. And so, like, that's interesting. Like, I like that way of putting it. It's like, maybe that's what you can define the mark of the beast uh, as, as a closed category. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this this line which I really enjoy from Basho, who was a haiku poet um, from like feudal Japan. Um, uh, maybe a little bit later than that, but um, but he said, "Do not seek to follow in the footsteps of the wise." seek what they sought right and uh and and he's describing that process like if you're following in somebody else's footsteps then you have created a closed system mm -hmm. and you said i need to follow in this closed system and operate according to its principles um that is not what the the masters that came before you were doing we talked about that uh a couple days back also about um if somebody's writing um, like some sort of mystical writing, some some sort of treatise or like an order of a monastery, then they're sort of writing. These are these are the principles, but you can't you can't write down um, the actual process that you went through when you had your your life changing mystical experiences, um, because when you had that, you weren't you weren't reading a manual. <laughs> Yeah, like so, it, it's it's impossible to actually transmit it in writing or in speech, either one, because that that is not the thing itself. Right. So what uh, what the guys in the early church do when they're writing instructions for monks or monasteries 
or giving spiritual guidance to other monasteries or something like that, is they tell a bunch of stories about monks that they know. Mm-hmm. Which is, like... Like, the way you have to do it. Yeah. It's like, you can't... Because, uh, like, I, I, I like going through this process myself of writing, like, okay, I want to write this... Uh, this, I guess you could say this treatise or this this work directed, I guess, at like my own church. Like, imagine that I'm writing this as like an epistle to my own church. And like, here's the things that need to be set in order. And so like thinking of like our particular Anabaptist, conservative, Amish, Mennonite sort of standards that we apply um, and like our practices, and also thinking about like the areas in which, you know, like maybe we've lost something or maybe we've drifted uh, away from the center in some way or another. And, you know, there's been a lot of attempts to do this throughout, I guess, fairly recent history, but they all end up being like these voluminous, rational explanations of our doctrines. That, I mean, they just like these huge books and like, I'm not necessarily saying that what they said is wrong, but it's like there's something abhorrent about the way in which they lay things out and define them and categorize them. Mm -hmm. And it's like I find myself, if I'm writing something um, to accomplish the same goal that they set out to accomplish, like I feel like I can't lay these things out directly. Yeah, right. Like, instead, like I have to. Uh, I have to use like this huge circular pattern like because like this is what I have to do is lay out like like you mentioned this earlier and this is like the central motif in my my thinking is God says to Moses like make everything according to the pattern that I showed you in the mountain like he's talking about the pattern so like God gave Moses in the mountain he gave him the law and he gave him inst the instructions on building the temple and the ornaments for the temple and the orders of the priesthood. And so, like, he's saying, like, what he says to Moses is, like, this is a pattern. Now, do everything according to this pattern. Mm -hmm. And this is brought out again in Hebrews, um, like, concerning the church. And, like, extending that is, like, look, what we're doing is here's this pattern. And, like, that's what we're doing in this conversation also is, like, look, here's this pattern. And, like, we need to make everything fit, in, like, not fit into these categories. Like, don't categorize things. But see, uh, see how things belong in a pattern. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you you mentioned like telling stories is the way that you have to do it. One, a story captures a pattern, right? In a way that um, that an essay is is very hard pressed to do. I won't say it's impossible, but uh, um, but it, it's just it's difficult. Um, story is is sort of like where you find meaning. And if you look at your own life and you try to figure out, is there a meaning in my life, then you have to view your life as a story in order to to even begin to approach the question. Uh, yeah, this sort of like story is kind of kind of a, of ultimate importance. But when you're when you're coming up with ideas, now this might be a like sort of an esoteric thing to say, but you were saying you, you come up with ideas and you try to write them. You try to put them all into categories. And it makes sense to do that because if you can put things into neat categories, then what you're saying can be more easily understood. 
Um, so there's great benefit in being able to do that. But there again, by putting things into categories, into categories, um, you're you're offering to your reader uh, something different than the thing that that was in your own mind, right. which which didn't exist in categories. Like the 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 ideas that were were dawning upon you didn't fit into a neat system, and you're trying to impose that on it so you can pass it on to other people. Yeah, and like this is something I, I've I've come to recognize, like in my own my own attempts to I guess relay my own beliefs or my own views or you know like relay my understanding of the scripture or however you want to put that is that I lay th these things out in this uh, well-defined manner mm -hmm. in this systematic manner and then when I'm when I get done I listen to what people say and it's like well that's like what they get is not what I have. Yeah. Yeah, but I, at the same time, e even though that, that kind of demonstrates the sort of insufficiency of categories, it also demonstrates the necessity of them. Uh -huh. Because because you can't communicate those, those we'll just say like flashes of inspiration, you can't in, in, in communicate those at all unless you put them into categories. So back to like the census, like it, it fits in with the law that you can take the census, but there's yeah. also there's also a problem with it. There's a sort of um, like spiritual truth that that is broken by the census. That's broken by putting things into categories. Yeah, I mean there are also like obviously there are examples where people are put into categories in the scripture. So it's like you have the the Jew and the Greek. Uh, male and female like those are categories mm -hmm. uh, the sheeps and the goats those are categories those on the right and the left those are categories mm -hmm. um, the the foreigner or you know, like even like the tribes like those are all categories like going back to the Old Testament yeah right um, well but when when you 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 also have this this kind of reminder of, of the importance that this closed category is insufficient. Right. I mean, for one thing, you started off with referencing a, a passage that says there is neither Jew nor Greek. Right. There is neither male nor female. Um, well, actually, that but, wasn't the one I was thinking oh, of. Oh, no? I was actually thinking of the okay. one, like, when he's talking about, like, you know, like, this, the, the gospel was delivered to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Mm -hmm. That's actually the one I had in mind. Yeah. It's like, because, like, there's the one where the categories are clear. But then, like you say, you take that further, and then you have another passage that's, like after the gospel is delivered to the Jew first and then the Greek, like you see the categories are overthrown. Yeah, right. And uh, and in terms of like like the categories between tribes, I mean like you're gonna marry across tribal lines. Like the, these these lines are, they're rigid and they're blurry at the same time. Yeah. Um, you, well, and you have like, like the, the, uh, the category of Jew and Gentile, which, which becomes like this sort of supreme category, but again, marriage to foreign or, uh, foreigners um, it does exist. It has consequences, but it's not evil. Yeah, and like we mentioned also in a previous conversation about the men of Nineveh, and where God says to to Jonah concerning them, like they don't know the difference between their right and their left, and much cattle. And you know, I presented like one one way of looking at that is like these are these people that are totally confused and mixed up. But there's another way of looking at it. I think this is from Maximus the Confessor who looks at it the opposite way and saying like look these people by like through repentance have overthrown categories 
and like this this makes them this has made them righteous in my sight yeah that they've overthrown categories and have brought all things together into the proper place yeah that's interesting um, I'm not sure if I agree with the interpretation but it's still no it, I, I'm it's, not sure either but it, like like you say it's interesting yeah like it's fascinating right because like it is it is actually like the context of it is actually actually after the repentance right the of yeah a, yeah um, yeah it, it's it's interesting like I say even if it's even if it doesn't capture what what is meant by the images in the scripture it still it still shows off a type of thinking yeah right but and like there's a sense in which I think maybe you can argue it contains both meanings mm-hmm. that it's like on the one hand they're unrighteous because they've gotten things out of their proper place but then on the other hand like there's also righteousness in that they've taken things they've taken the categories and put them all in their place and then like in Christ or in God like they bridge them they, they span across them yeah right okay well I, I think we better get to the mark of the beast yeah all right we've been like talking for like an hour probably <laughs> yeah something like that oh uh, uh, yeah so what do you have to say about the mark of the beast John <laughs> No, like, so we've been talking about the Mark of the Beast this whole time. That's our dirty little secret. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I guess, like, we need to tie that back in. Well, now, now we did mention um, that we get I- ideas in, um, I, I, maybe among, uh, typically among conservative cr- Christians, that um, this is the Mark of the Beast, this thing that's in the real world. And it might be things like you said, uh, microchips, maybe you said credit cards. Um, I don't remember all the examples that you gave. Um, like everything, um, vaccines was one that's, you know, people have been mentioning that lately. Um, it's something everybody is forced to do. Um, everybody is going to have this, but like what, whatever people come up with and say, this is the mark of the beast. It's always, it's always some sort of totalizing system that's trying to classify right. everybody. Yeah. Um, it's trying to put people into a system. And like I said, even a credit card does something like that. And actually, um, I mean, a, a credit card company theoretically has power to um, to to say, now I'm not, I'm, I'm not presenting this as like a, a legitimate conspiracy, but a credit card power company does have the power to say, I don't like your religion, therefore you cannot spend money. Yeah. Um, so, so that type of classification, um, run amok or, or if the power is, is in like truly evil hands, um, it, it could be used as this terrible tool for evil. Yeah. And like, there's an interesting thing about the mark of the beast is like, it says concerning the mark of the beast, like, first of all, it says like the beast will cause that everyone receives the mark on their right hand and on their forehead. Mm-hmm. Um, and like... It doesn't say the beast will cause that it, his servants will will receive it. It says everyone. Everyone will receive this mm-hmm. mark. Yeah. Um, and then it also says, like, and it'll be that you can't buy or sell unless you have the mark. Yeah. And so oftentimes you have this, like, extended to, like, the level of, you could say, like, almost to the level of conspiracy theory where they're going to create this, this mark or this system or this technology to exclude Christians, to not allow us to do to buy and sell unless we put the mark of the beast. But we can't put the mark of the beast on ourselves because then we're going to hell. Like this is kind of 
the impression I get a lot of times when I, when people are are looking at the mark of the beast. Yeah. But it's like, no, actually what it's saying is you can't function in the world unless you have something of the beast in you. Right. Um, which is actually true. Um, and like this is this is I guess where I want to take it is it says the mark of the beast is the mark of a man. And a lot of times or, or the number of the beast is the number of a man rather. Um, which is it's unclear, I guess, in my mind whether it's saying the mark and the number are the same thing. The mark, the name, and the number are the same thing, or if they're connected. Like I, I view it as like they're tied together and connected. And it says like the number, the number is the number of a man. And you know, like you might have this interpretation like, oh, that's that's meaning like there's going to be a specific man that's the beast, and he'll have this number six 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 associated with him, or something like that. Yeah. I was like, no. There's two ways you can look at that, and I think they're actually both true concurrently, um, like they're both true at the same time. Um, that it's the number of a man, um, which if you know something about Greek grammar, you know that's actually not, like it's not presented with that indefinite article because it doesn't exist in ancient Greek. Mm -hmm. um, so it's actually saying it's the number of man, um, anthropos. So you can interpret that as like, is this saying, this is the number, like this is the thing, this this defines man. Or you can also look at it, like, yeah, it is the number of a man, but that man is Adam. Like the beast has put his mark on Adam, which is like, this is entirely biblical to view it this way. Because like, there's so much else, like go back to Hebrews, that Adam, like Adam has his heart corrupted through his fall Adam has put upon himself the mark of the beast and like so by extension does all of Adam's race like all of Adam's race inherits this mark um, like this is this is I guess the way I I look at it is like he's saying the mark of the beast the number of the beast this is the number of a man and that man is Adam because Adam's sin is wanting to know everything wanting to be able to have this complete and this perfect knowledge and accounting of things. Mm -hmm. This is what he was trying to do. He was trying to make himself like God yeah. by eating of the apple. You know, and interestingly, he's he's naming <coughs> animals beforehand. I mean, like, he's he's coming right. up with ways of classifying things, like, even in the garden. Um, yeah. And, and so there's, um, you, you were saying that you everyone has the mark of the beast on them. It's not just the unrighteous people, but everyone has that mark. Um, and we're, we, we can expand this, this closed uh, interpretation of a symbol in a moment, but it, for right now, if we discuss that, we'll start with the idea that, um, that this mark of the beast represents uh, a sort of totalizing system, yeah. as we've mentioned before, which is what we've been talking about the whole time, these different totalizing systems, these ways of categorizing things, classifying things. Um, then we, we see there is something that's acceptable about classification, um, about putting everything in its proper place. Adam is, as I said, classifying things right. um, in the garden, but then there's also this um, this type of classification. I mean, maybe you could say the knowledge of good and evil. Um, I mean, there's so many things that that could mean, so I, I hate to, to pin that down too, but it, since we're speaking of classification, now now that becomes like you're, you're, you're wanting knowledge of mysteries what is good and what's evil um uh oh like uh it, 
to, to go unbiblical, like Antigone says something like, um, which of us can say what the gods consider evil? Um, we, we can't have knowledge of these mysteries. Yeah. Um, and like, I also want to throw in there, like considering the, that maybe you can say the man is Adam, like, what does the name Adam actually mean? The name Adam actually means man. Mm -hmm. um, like you could look at it as being being basically the same word being used there. It's like he's uh, this is the mark of Adam. This is the mark of a man. This is the mark. But like it's maybe presented in this way to to make the point that this is something that you extend onto yourself. Like this is the mark of Adam, and by extension, also you. Carl also means man. Interesting. <laughs> That's not very biblical, but I just think it's interesting that you would have a name that just means guy. <laughs> hey, fella. But it, you know. Incidentally, a... <laughs> who's the great to totalizing force in uh, early medieval Europe? Hmm, Carl, huh? <laughs> man the big. <laughs> or is the great man, Charlemagne. Yeah. Um, Which literally what... means Carl the Great. Yeah. Or, and again, Carl is man. <laughs> So he's the great man. Yeah. Um. <coughs> that actually, oh. is pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. If, I mean, we might be stretching on that one a little bit. <laughs> uh, now you mentioned Adam. There's, there's also, there is a connection between the mark of the beast and the mark of Cain as well, like a right. symbolic connection. This is a mark that goes on your forehead. Cain received a mark that was on his forehead as well. And, yeah, and, I and guess it's like, it's like a like a mark of protection for Cain, actually. Like, um, so so people will not harm him, because he's asking God for protection. Like, people will want to kill me well, when yeah, they but... see me, and so he gets that thing that protects him. Um, now, is that mark associated with totalizing systems? Uh, it's hard to say. What I mean, maybe again, maybe that's a stretch to say so. But Cain's descendants go go on to create everything that is a totalizing system. Right, but like also, what's the point of a totalizing system? It's to protect you. Yeah, right. So right. like going back to your illustration of budgeting, it's like well, it's a totalizing system that exists to protect you from poverty. Mm -hmm, right. Um, and you know, like Jesus tells the parable of the guy who's had a great harvest, and so he builds a bigger barn to store all of his good. It's like well, then your soul. Your soul is going to be required of you this night. Um, and it's like there's a man that, you know, is accounting against his own famine, against his own mortality. And it's like, nope, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, I'm true. Like, a, well, you know, and I, I think I say his descendants create the totalizing systems. But, you know, like the city is, is kind of the premier of those. Of course, they also create agriculture. But uh, um, but so his descendants, go, Cain's descendants, go out and found cities. And cities, um, like, these are sort of this ultimate system, um, this ultimate uh, mark of, of civilization and order. Um, and there is something uh, ruthless and dehumanizing about a city. Um, there are things about your human nature that are not acceptable if you're going to live in a city um, that that some of those things are just aren't acceptable if you're going to live amongst other human beings. But there are also a lot of things that are perfectly fine right. if you're not in a city, if you're in the country. Right. But when you go into, into the city, you have to shed some of your humanity right. in order to be a part of it. So it, like it strips something of your soul. Right. Um, but it is also something that protects you. It is a mark of protection to yeah. be in the city.
Um, and it's like you build, like in ancient times, like you build walls around the city to keep evil out. You know, that might be wild beasts like lions and and things like that that are roaming in the desert or uh, roaming bandits and things mm -hmm. like that. You know, keeping keeping the evil that exists outside from coming in and destroying you. Yeah. Um, you know, like, like as far as like, you know, saying there's also the Mark of Cain. Like I really actually think the mark of Cain is just an extension of the mark of Adam. Yeah. Because like what I see in the story of Cain and Abel, it's like okay, Adam, Adam has done this thing, this awful thing, you know, of taking the fruit and eating it, and you know wanting to make himself like God, and is punished for it, and is cast out of paradise, and receives mortality and death as his reward. Mm -hmm. um, but then he has his two sons, and one son takes Adam's folly and runs away with it, and that's Cain. Yeah. The other son learns Adam's lesson and uh, like accepts on himself the mark of God, and that's Abel. And of course, Cain kills Abel. Yeah. Um, and then you have Seth, who's just kind of like the middle ground. <laughs> um, at least that's how I see it. Yeah. Because um, it's like here, obviously, like we can't actually have a righteous man, or he'll just get killed. Mm -hmm. That's what's going to happen. Um, which again is also the story of Jesus. Like you can't have a righteous man, or they'll kill him. Yeah. Um, which I mean, I, I think like a, a part of the lesson, especially when you apply that to Jesus, is like <laughs> to be a righteous man, um, you must stand up in the face of death. Right. Um, yeah. So it's like in my mind, I guess I don't know if that's a stretch or not, but like the mark of Cain and like the mark of Cain is like. Uh, a curse that God puts on Cain that is actually just an extension of the curse that he's already bearing through his father Adam. Um, and it's like God is making more clear through Cain, like, look, this is the path you've chosen to go down. This is the consequence of what's happening. You're taking on like this, this cycle of evil. This is your mark that this, like your pride and hubris and desire you know, to be in control of all things is going to create this world that just increasingly devours itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if, if we apply the, uh, the the logic of the census, the totalizing system of the census, and then we apply that to the city, which comes from Cain, then the, the lesson is that if you're going to live in the city, you have to pay a ransom for your soul. Right. Which, uh, as a... As a country boy and somebody who's I mean I've spent several years living in towns now um, then I, I sort of feel that actually I feel like uh, uh, this is this is maybe too much of a tangent but um, I think we get all these uh, these sort of novel meditation practices that urban people really like and rural people think are just uh, just totally crazy Right. Um, and like, if you do this stuff, like you, you have some kind of spiritual problem. Um, but I don't know. I mean, there, there is something about like being part of the system of the city that, um, that like it's, it's pulling something out of your soul. Um, and I think that that urban people have some spiritual needs that rural people don't have. Well, that's also interesting. Cause it's like Christianity on the one hand, largely takes roots in cities, 
early in its history. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly clear if that's the case or not, like, because obviously we don't actually have much uh, historical record of what's going on in not the cities. Yeah, but I mean, but, you, know, you have these, you know, missions going to cities, like, right. uh, if, if uh, Paul's traveling around, he's going to tell you what cities he's going to. Yeah, but like one, like, understanding also, like, because the city is, is the center of agriculture basically yeah it's, right it's, it's where where you yeah. come together to do business and yeah, so like of course right. that's where you're going to go if you're a philosopher if you're a religious teacher you're going to go to a city because that's where everybody's coming to do yeah, business yeah um which is again like the mark of the beast you can't do business <laughs> without the mark of the beast right yeah um, including in this case this sort of business of god right yeah exactly but then so like what 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 happens like a really interesting hap thing happens, and this relates to what you're talking about, giving a ransom for your soul. When you have the Edict of Toleration, like the two edicts, I forget what the first one was in 314, and then the Edict of Toleration. These are both by Constantine, I think, in 317, that makes Christianity legal and ends all persecution, all formal persecution by the Roman government. Um, what ends up happening is a lot of Christians flee society. Mm -hmm. They flee the cities. Yeah. And this is where, like, basically the root of monasticism, that's not entirely accurate. The idea of monasticism existed well before then. But, uh, like, the Desert Fathers and the Cappadocian Fathers and people like that, like, these are all um, people that flee the cities. Um, and like, I think it relates to that idea, like you're talking about, like, you've got to give a ransom for your soul. Mm -hmm. And it's like them recognizing it's like, well, I can't give a ransom for my soul in the city anymore. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's this, uh, this interesting tension between like the church and the empire that, right. that runs throughout all of Christian history. Uh -huh. Um, like there's a, there's a problem with the church being married to, to the totalizing force of society. Yeah, and like I, the fact that it's the empire, I think, is particularly important. Mm -hmm. And like it's always the empire. Like throughout the entire history of the church, it's always the empire. Yeah. So like it's the Roman Empire, and then it's the Eastern Roman Empire, and then it's the Holy Roman Empire and Charlemagne, and then it's the Russian Empire, um, and then the, like the church in Rome sets itself up as like its own empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so like it's always the empire. Yeah. And like that's fascinating because what is an empire? It's a totalizing system. Yeah, right. Like that's like the simplest definition of an empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, America fancies itself very much as not being an empire. Um, and yet we, we can't quite escape that. Right. Um, that, that criticism that we are an empire. Right. Um, well, according to that definition, we certainly are. Yeah, right. And there again, like you have this bizarre thing. In yeah, and, and Christianity. Like, we we are like, more of a totalizing force than any of the empires in history. Yeah, and, but and like you have this bizarre thing in American Christianity. It's like America is the empire that we serve. Like it, America has become this holy state, mm -hmm. this holy empire. Yeah. And again, I mean, there's there's great tension right. in that statement. Yeah. Um, I mean, even for somebody who says who who buys into that and says, yes, America is the empire. We are serving America. We're trying to um, to do the best for America that we can do. Yeah, and make America into this godly institution. Yeah, right. E even even somebody who has that position um, also feels a tension within himself that, like, uh, I'm not saying that America's 
golden, you know? Yeah, like, it's interesting though, because those <laughs> those that hold that position would hold that, that the predecessors before them who did precisely the same thing with Rome <laughs> yeah. are an abomination yeah, to the right, church. Right. Yeah, well, and I mean, and, and in, like, in a way it's yeah, in a way it's true, right. like, and it's true of them too. Um, that's what I mean, like there's this tension, like um, there there must be some connection between the church and the empire, which I mentioned before, um, and, and that's not a, like a particularly Mennonite thing to say, because the, the Mennonites have been so far removed, um, like the like the Desert Fathers or the Cappadocian Fathers, yeah. like these early monastics, the Mennonites have, have always pulled away from from the state and and push for this idea of separation of church and state that we like we don't want to be any part of that but but there's still a tension in that like um you want you want your king to be serving god or right. you or your president um you want the the ministers of the state to be um aligned with the will of god in the work that they do um and not not sons of the devil right and like there's also like this this implication throughout scripture that like when people of God are in the midst of the kingdom ultimately the king can't help himself but serve God mm -hmm. like you have this with Nebuchadnezzar and the Egyptians and, and the Persians like they can't help but honor God yeah um, and ultimately Rome yeah it's interesting that I mean the leaders of the nation seem like they're people of such great power um, and and yet they are um, like more than anyone else they are they are swayed by the spirit of the times, like the social forces around them, um, they're an extension of that. Uh, this will be an extreme version of that statement, but but you could you could extend that to say that the heart of the king is shaped by the heart of the people. Right. It's like even the Mongol Khans bowed themselves to the church which is like a, an interesting little fact of history that most people don't know but it's like here you have like the most tyrannical like what we present is like the most tyrannical empire possible mm -hmm. but it's like even them it's like even, even they submit themselves to the church yeah you know there's this uh i, I can't quote this but it seems like this uh, this is a passage in ecclesiastes that's that's talking about how everyone is serving someone else and it kind of like goes up the hierarchy of society and then says um, even the king eats from the fields um, right like the the king and that that's sort of a weird way to cap it off because he's not he's not like the servant of his peasants in a way like a good king is um, but like by the natural uh, just simple definition of what a hierarchy is the king is the guy that's the top dog and everybody else is doing his will um, but in this strange way he's doing he's doing the will of the people like his spirit um, his will is is like is is strangely subordinated um, to the will of the people yeah um, anyway like as far as like going back to the mark of the beast and the number of the beast I don't know how much we actually want to get into the uh, the number itself in numerology and all those things mm -hmm. um, yeah I, it, it's tough I mean there are a lot yeah. of different interpretations and and uh, um, I mean, a, a lot of them seem like, like, very appealing. Yeah, I mean, so like, there's like some interesting things. Like, so like, the number six is one plus two plus three, which you can define as unity. One obviously is unity, mm -hmm. duality. Well, it's a two. you know triangular number too, which yeah, is no. like a um, this. Uh, um, it, it is a pattern. The number six constitutes a pattern. Yeah. So and but it's like also like you have it like this unity and duality and multiplicity which is like the desire to contain the essence of everything mm -hmm. um, yeah 
which so like it's often said like number six is the number of a man in the Bible um, and then like you get like you know six times six is 36 and then if you add all of the numbers from 1 to 36 together their sum is 666 um, I don't know quite quite what that implies but it's, it's a pretty interesting fact yeah right um, yeah it is um, but it's like so like there's kind of this uh, there's kind of perhaps this implication in six, in the number 666 um, which is also why like early church fathers are aware of the fact that some documents of the book of revelations list the number as 616 but they say that's an improper reading and here's why mm -hmm. um, like it because it doesn't really mean anything <laughs> the yeah num the number doesn't mean anything right um, so uh, like those are all some interesting things you can throw in there but um, it's like maybe there's an implication embedded in the number of this totalizing force this uh, you know tying of everything together this per this this uh, like tyrannical perfection um, you can think of like fascism as being like the perfect expression of this idea which incidentally like I'd say on this is like this is the reason why the fascists and the Nazis and Hitler disturb us so much is not because they're so unspeakably bad but it's because they're the most human thing that we've seen in like they're the most human thing that you can see yeah like, it's like this is this ultimate what you see in fascism is the ultimate humanity mm -hmm. um, like this ultimate uh, tyranny of perfection. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we mentioned in a recent talk that um, if you if you actually descend into chaos, the world's not going to be destroyed in chaos. What's going to happen instead is that from chaos or from anarchy, some totalizing system is going to rise up. Yeah. If, if you have a nation that descends into anarchy, then immediately it turns into into this sort of absolute tyranny right which is exactly like 1930s germany yeah no it is yeah um but i i mentioned that just because that you sort of also have that symbol in um in revelation in the description of the beast who comes out of the abyss like he, he comes from this place of chaos yeah and then and then immediately he sits on the throne right um, the dragon gives him the throne um so if 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 this idea of the totalizing force is correct, well, is it is, is then, it accurate to like to define the dragon as a being of chaos? Well, no, no. It says he, it says that the, he rises. There's, there's, yeah, I know. One beast thinking. rises up out of the sea, which is also chaos. Right. One rises up out of the abyss, which is chaos. Right. So now, I mean, a dragon is often a symbol of chaos as well. But I was not trying to make that. No, that I didn't claim think right you there. were. I was just interjecting that in my own. Yeah. Right. It's like chaos, like when the beast arises, chaos gives it its throne mm -hmm, right it's like it yields to it chaos yeah. will yield to the beast yeah like chaos will yield to tyranny mm -hmm. right yeah i don't know i just I, I thought that was kind of an interesting connection to uh to that point that we'd made earlier um but but i i want to try to poke at this idea of, of totalizing force a little bit because um because there's there's really not very much said about the, the mark of the beast or the number of the beast. There's just very, very few words right. in Revelation that refer to it. 
And so we've been kicking around this idea of this, yeah, this mark as the totalizing force. About, about the mark of God. Than yeah, about yeah, the mark of beast. right. Um, and, and so, um, so like I said, I wanted to poke at the idea a little bit because, because in reading through the passage again, I sort of felt like this makes sense, um, this kind of interpretation of it. Um, it doesn't seem like, like, like it's contradicted anywhere in the story or in the symbols in the story. Um, to, to say that the, the number of the beasts means that you're, you're classifying people and you're putting them into a, a, a kind of totalizing system. It, it sort of all makes sense, but it also seems like, like but, but the, the text doesn't say that. Right. Um, it, it, there's, and not only does it not say it directly, literally, but, um, but, but even the symbolism is, like, is, is, is pretty light. Um, um. Yeah, and, and so, like, well, that's important to bring out, because, like, I've made this comment on Revelations before, that, like, if Revelations was trying to say the things that you think it's saying, it would have said that. Mm-hmm, right. Like, uh, the, the reason Revelations is written in the way that it is is because that's the most perfect possible way to express what it's expressing. Yeah. Like, so, like, if, if you think you have to decode it, it's like, no, you're wrong. Like, it's not it's not a secret code that's that's expressing something that you're only going to get if you crack the code. It's expressing what you can express in the most possible way, or the best possible way. So it's like... Yeah. Saying that... Uh, saying that you're... Uh, um, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. For those listening, I just pointed him down... Uh, down a little trail that we haven't been down before, so I distracted him. Um, um, I knocked him off the the, yeah. the track, the trail. I literally pointed him off the trail he was on. Yeah. Um, no, no, you were saying Revelation expresses it in the best way that it can be expressed. Yeah. So like tying that together with what you're saying about like the, the totalizing force is like that's obviously an insufficient explanation mm -hmm. because if that's all it meant, it would have said that. Yeah. Right. Um, that's. But I think at the same time, that's obviously contained in what it does say. Yeah. But there's more to it than that. Just, right. as it, just as in the sense, like I was thinking, you could look at it the other way. What's the mark of God that you wear on your forehead? Well, you could say that it's humility. But that's obviously an insufficient explanation, too. Yeah. Like, the best explanation for it is, it's the mark of God. Yeah, right. And, like, that's a mystery that unfolds. Um, like, it constantly unfolds. Just like the mark of the beast is a mystery that unfolds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is this this interesting like uh, undoing of you might say it's an undoing of the mark of the beast. You might say it's an undoing of the mark of Cain, or or you could stretch back to the Adam. Um, when when you receive that, not I mean not only do you receive the mark of God on your forehead, but you also receive a new name. Right. Um, so so like this this sort of total undoing of all these things like. Like your name is is your identity, and your like it's also a, a means of classification. Like you've been put into one system, and identified as one thing, and now you will be drawn out of that system and identified as a different thing. Mm -hmm. Now er, earlier I, I I raised that objection, since you didn't give me the same answer this time around, then I'll I'll just I'll just go through it. Um, I'd said that I didn't know if the symbolism was really there to say 
to be able to say um, it, the mark of the beast is about a totalizing system, and that's that's how we would define it. Um, and you said, well, pride is is a part of it as well, yeah. um, and and pride pride just goes hand in hand with with the idea of a totalizing system. Obviously, being proud is not the same thing, but like being proud in your knowledge means that you think that you can create a, a we'll say a systematic theology that can contain everything. Right. Being proud in your power means that you can um, you can be a totalitarian dictator of a of a great nation. Um, like you you can you can uh, make everything in the world conform to your will. Like that's what pride. Right. Um, that's what pride is all about. So pride is the thing that creates totalizing systems. Um, yeah, and I would, and I guess I, where I try to get out with this idea of the mark of the beast is, uh, so like, let's stop looking at things as being the mark of the beast and see how it's, I guess you could say, this sort of philosophical idea, um, and it's one that unfolds and unwraps, and we've been presenting this, uh, I guess this kind of framework for interpreting the idea and for allowing it to unfold, but like it's a lot more than what we've said. Mm -hmm. And like we can't possibly say what it actually is. Yeah. Um, and like consider you like, consider the beast as being like the devil, basically. Um, and like consider like so what is the mark of the devil? Yeah, which which again like is in Revelation. Right. Um, just as just as like the mark of God is something you can't pin down to being one thing, but it's like a an overarching thing that unfolds and contains so much. It's like, well, the mark of the devil is, is the same way. It's something that contains a lot. It unfolds, it unwraps. And um, I guess my goal is like to try to present, like I said, present this uh, this way of, of allowing that to happen. Creating an understanding, I guess, in my own mind and minds of those listening. Like, okay, how can we start to look at this idea of the mark of the beast? Um, see it unwrap, see it unfold, and equip me to meditate on this idea and to consider this idea and what it means to have the mark of the beast mm -hmm. well, since, stamped on me. Since you mentioned that, that connection with uh, the beast and Satan, then um, I'll also just mention a couple other things there. One, uh, again, I guess, I guess trying to, in a way, justify this idea of totalizing system um, and, and maybe tie some of these things together. Um, Christianity um, has often associated rationality with the devil. And it's, it's kind of a curious thing, especially for, for modern people. And it's, it's not, again, this idea that we, we should reject logic, we should reject reason or whatever. Like Christianity was not saying that in, in, in making the devil um, into a rational figure. But in, um, but essentially, it, it's it's pinning pride on the devil, uh -huh. um, and that's what the, this sort of devilish rationality is all about: is this pride that says you can contain everything, um, you can contain it all in your your system of rational thought, um, and so like that's sort of another connection: this this Satan, which is the beast. Well, it's um, like even I, I take it even further than that. It's like what what Satan is telling, what the serpent, the devil, Satan is telling. Adam is you can be like God. Mm -hmm. um, which is maybe another way you can categorize or not categorize, uh, define this idea of the mark of the beast is like this mark that you have stamped on your on your heart that 
I can, in fact, be like God. Um, and this expresses itself in all kinds of subtle different ways. And it's like being this... Uh, being this mark of pride and presumption that is in constant conflict with uh, um, the mark of God that's on your heart. The mark of, like, no, I can't be like God. I need to humble myself and instead, you know, be in subjection to God. Which, again, is like also the same thing as this idea that the church is in constant conflict with the empire. Um, and with this idea of the empire being stamped on the church. It's, it's exactly the same conflict. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of this notion of budgeting again, and and like just sticking this in with the idea of pride, because budgeting is like such a benign, totalizing system. Right. And, and even though I said like that that is not the way that I approach it, um, I still think like well it's a good thing, and it would be it would be good if more people in this world would budget more wisely. Right. Um, so, so I'm not, I'm not attacking it all at all, and that's the reason why I like using it as an example, is because you have something that's clearly good and useful and beneficial, and like saves people's lives right. um, sometimes when they do it. But, but in, in, in a budget, you also have this sort of pride, um, and, and again, like this sort of very benign kind of pride. But, um, but it's sort of like if I can manage all the pieces well then everything will turn out well in the end. And um, you, you get this idea by contrast um, in the Bible that like you, you shouldn't even say we will go into this city or that city, but you should say if the Lord wills it, um, then we will go into this, you know, then we will, we will be able to carry out our plans. Um, and so a budget, like you've, you've sort of created this plan, you created this map for things, and it's good, I mean, it's it's good to make plans to go into this city or that city, like to have some direction in your life. Uh, so not to not to criticize the idea of making plans either, but to say um, there is a danger in it. There is a kind of pride that goes along with it. And and I guess basically just return to this idea, like pay a ransom for your soul when you're doing this. Like um, I'm uh, I've been going through the process of of trying to lay out um, plans for my semester of teaching. And last year. I started, um, I, I took the job the day before classes started, and um, this is high school classes, and I got to like plan every day the night before, basically, like I was just scrambling, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I was scrambling the whole year, I thought my life would be way better if I, could, if I had a plan, if I had only had time to come up with a plan before this started. And uh, so, so lately I've been coming up with a plan for next year, and when I go through it, like, um, there's something that feels good about nailing everything down and having a clear roadmap, but there's also another part of me that says, um, that wisely says, you can't trust this plan uh -huh. because when you put it into motion, things will change and they better change or else you're a totalitarian. Like, right. like you had better respond. I mean, I'm, I've got some things I'd like to try that I've never tried before and it would be very arrogant of me to believe that those things will succeed. Yeah. And I, I think they will and I hope that they will and, and like... My vision is, is, I think, a very good vision, well, like, but, you, but you I don't know. I mean, like, I, I must go into it with humility. Yeah, it's like you can actually take that idea in a tyrannical direction, too. It's like, uh, well, your solution to the fact that your plans might not work is to make more plans to plan on them not working. Yeah, right. It's like, well, you can just create then, this. then you're just killing yourself. Right, but, like, people do that. 
Yeah, right. And I would say a lot of, like, I've never been a teacher, but I had a lot of teachers. It's like I can I can think of a lot of teachers that that's the way they operate. Yeah. Is just, you know, like, contingency plans on top of their plans. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, you know, like, their classes, their classroom has to be conducted in perfect order because, you know, we can't, we can't get off the plan because then what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and yet if you don't have if you don't have a healthy amount of that tyrannical system, then right. then you have a disastrous class. Right. Although I would say the best the the guy, the guy I consider to have been my best and favorite teacher uh, had a fairly chaotic classroom. Yeah. Right. But then again, like I think it's probably a situation that wasn't wasn't good for a lot of students. No, it wouldn't be. Um, I mean, I, I, I too tend to um, prefer a, a degree of chaos yeah. um, in things, and, um, and and there are consequences. I mean, like it's it's a challenge to find that right balance between how much do you nail everything down and how much do you keep things open because there are there are consequences either way. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess we've been going for a while. We probably ought to wrap up. Yeah, we uh, we're like over an hour and a half, I think. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting assaulted by mosquitoes. Yeah. Well, any other thoughts? Uh, I mean, we we talked about this mark of the beast. Um, I, I mean, I just ask: Is there anything else that we've we've left out that you um, think we need to consider? Oh, I was going to say maybe we should resist the temptation to totalize our conversation. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, no, I mean like. I, I, I guess nothing more really comes to mind. Mm -hmm. I feel like we've laid out a pretty good framework. Yeah. Um, but like also like taking this as, as like like we said with uh, with revelations, like revelations is something that expands to the whole of, of reality, to the whole of your experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Carl like, Carl Jung also really liked revelation. Yeah. And he he said. Um, he he absolutely believed this to be a vision of John. Right. Um, he he believed it was this spontaneous vision that came on this man because um, the you might say like the the Christ or the God of the New Testament um, was was too too much love. Um, right. Or at least to John he was. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and there was something you you could say like incomplete something naive. Um, like John's, uh, again, for, for young John's, um, his take on things was good, but it, it had some holes in it. Right. And, and those holes were big and glaring and, and they needed to be dealt with. And so then he has this spontaneous vision of Christ, the judge right. that comes in and it's, it's a terrifying judge. Yeah. Um, and like, John, when he, he beholds Christ, um, like he falls on the floor as if he's died. Which is like maybe the reason why uh, why modern Christianity gets so obsessed with revelations is because like the Christ of revelations is the opposite of the Christ of modern Christianity. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Like you read the description, like I love that. Like I love the Christ of revelations. Like not because I'm like some kind of sadist or something like that, um, but because uh, like. This this is a f complete Christ. Mm -hmm, like right. he is a terrifying judge, but at the same time, like it's clear that he's doing all of this for the love of his bride. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, and I mean, there, like, there's there's um, beauty and glory uh-huh. in the, the Christ of the Revelation also. Yeah, and it's like what you get in Revelations, which is, like, Revelations, like, the Christ of Revelations is, is the basis for the iconography of Christ in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the reason for that is because they see the Christ of Revelations as a complete Christ. Yeah. Like, this is the thing that contains all of the nature of Christ. Right. Yeah, and so, so in in the Carl Jung's perspective on it, then um, Revelation is um, I, I I I'm trying to dis- describe how it's designed, like almost it's like, but not that John is doing the designing. Maybe a Jungian way to say it would be that like John subconscious designed this thing. Um, maybe maybe you could also say like this vision is some sort of corrective that comes from god right but um but like however you try to define it like the design of this thing the 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 purpose uh of this thing is to give um a a complete picture for someone who has an incomplete picture Mm -hmm. and uh and i mean your 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 take on it is like that is what this book is it is the complete picture yeah exactly and uh, like it's interesting, like considering the uh, like the context of John's revelation is like he's he's in exile all alone on the island of death. I paused briefly. I normally don't do that, but we had some noisy vehicles driving by, so I apologize for the interruption. But that was the reason for it. And Dave, you were saying? Uh, yeah, I was saying uh, the context of John's revelation is he's on the island of Patmos, which is the island of death. It's like a desolate place, and you just like you're sent there to die. He doesn't die miraculously, but so he's there uh, by himself in isolation with nobody else around in this terrible place. All he has to do is meditate. So this is what he's doing when he sees receives this revelation. So like, he's not coming to this vision or this knowledge by uh, like sitting around with all of the other apostles and all of the disciples and all of the other Christians and exploring theology and like trying to figure out. So it's like okay, so how do we put how do we put our faith together? How do we conclude this thing? How do we wrap all the loose ends up? Um, or like, how do we, how do we develop these perfect statements of faith? It's like John's perfect statement of faith is given to him in the form of this vision of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, this isn't like this isn't through a rational process that John receives this, like this perfection of understanding. Yeah, right. But it's through being like it's through the spirit. It's through the spiritual process. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think we'll uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Um, again, if you wanna if you wanna kind of catch our full perspective of the Mark of the Beast, then rewind and listen to it over again. <laughs> um, because again, even before we really got into the subject, we were we were dealing with what does a totalizing system look like? Um, where do we where do we see that in our world? How is it an evil thing? And yet, how is it the thing that is is necessary and is a mark of every single man? Um, something that we do engage in, and yet something that has consequences for it, which I, I think is is really a valuable perspective, actually, because because when when we complain about the things in modern society that everybody is doing, we are saying we're doing those things too. And yeah. I, I don't mean I don't mean me and Dave. I mean when everybody complains about things in modern society and says this is a problem and this is a problem and everybody does this and everybody does this. Well, you're doing it too, and you and you have to. Right. Um, I mean, most things, anyways. I guess there are some things that you can you can get away from, but for the most part, like you do, you do kind of sell your soul to systems right. that and you I, don't I, like. I, I think it's important to point out. So, like, you have the horror 
of Babylon, the woman, like in uh, in Revelations, that's judged. But like those that judge her, they're not the righteous. It's not that like the righteous. So you have this idea that the righteous are called out from her, so that they won't be, they won't take part in her judgment. Um, like they won't be partakers of her judgment. I should say mm -hmm. they won't. They don't receive a, a portion of her judgment for have, for being in. in in her when this judgment comes on her um but so like but the important thing there is who are the ones that are actually doing the judging the judgment who are the the actual forces bringing like i guess you could say the wrath of god down upon her they're, they're actually like it says they're they're the ten heads of the beast or the ten horns of the beast i can't remember um like they're 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 those that are a part of the beast, servants of the beast, like it describes them as kings of the world that don't have power but will be given a power for an hour to accomplish this. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like they're 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 not the people that do the judging and bring God's wrath and purify His church. They're not good people. They're not righteous people. Like they're the unrighteous. And like this is a consistent theme in Scripture that mm -hmm. the instruments of God's wrath and judgment are the unrighteous. Yeah. So it's like be cautious when you think that you're purifying the church. Yeah, or, or, or I mean, any institutions. Like, we, yeah, right. we have this tendency to judge the institutions and talk about how evil they are. Um, and, yeah, it, it actually, it is the wicked that are judging those things. And the good, the righteous people do see, yes, these are institutions, and I don't want to sell my soul to the institution. Right. But um, yet, my duty, like the story of my life, oftentimes winds up being a part of some institution. Yeah, and like and, that's, and that's, as a part of that institution, like I'm redeeming the thing. Yeah, like that's the thing. Like part of the story too is like they don't, uh, they don't separate themselves off from the woman. They don't bring themselves out of Babylon. Mm -hmm. They don't reject Babylon. Rather, when the time of judgment comes, God Himself lifts them out. Yeah, and then like they're all then they're also like the ones presiding over like what I would describe as her her baptism and resurrection and renewal in Christ yeah although that that uh, to justify that I think would have to be a different conversation right. than this one yeah um, but yeah our, our, our relationship with systems and with institutions is complex um, and I mean that's like our, our relationship with the mark of the beast is is sort of complex as uh -huh. well um, like it's it's yeah but it's like you don't want to be the revolutionary or I, I would I'll, I'll go ahead and take the risk of saying you don't want to be the reformer yeah um, yeah not the kind of reformer that breaks away and forms a new church anyway. right or like the Marxist revolutionary who, who wants to totally topple and overthrow the system because like yeah well look what happens when you do that what happens is the book of revelations is fulfilled you you you're given power for an hour and then you're destroyed like the thing the very thing that you create just consumes you mm -hmm. like the fires that you've created consume you yeah yeah it's a true pattern i mean like you're you're speaking about a symbol in in revelation you're saying it, it that symbol is fulfilled in these moments like this and and you can you can look through history and you can find examples of that revolution that consumes the revolutionary and and you basically can't find counterexamples. Uh -huh. um, I mean like uh, I mean maybe simplistically we could point to the American Revolution as being a counterexample of that but like for for the most part where where you do have 
the revolutionary who judges um, the horror of Babylon that he's coming out of. Right. Um, things don't end well. Yeah. Okay, well, I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Um, and uh, see you next time. I don't know, maybe we'll talk about the horror of Babylon, but we might have other places we'll want to go to. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support this podcast, then all that we ask is for you to subscribe. Think of a friend who might enjoy it and share it with them. And please join us again for another walk in the woods, another conversation, and another journey in the sacred life.